Welcome to the Ask Zach Show. I'm your host, Zach Childs. I've spent the last 30 years working in the music industry here in Nashville, Tennessee, during which I've done everything from touring with major artists like Brad Paisley and Carrie Underwood to playing the nastiest dive bars or even the occasional wedding. This show is all about barreling down the rabbit hole on all things guitar and the music we love. We will cover the legendary players, gear insights, and even some interviews along the way. I hope you enjoy. To support the show, follow the links in the description to find out about my Patreon page. Or go to my store at AskZach.com to pick up a coffee mug or t-shirt. Now, let's dive in. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to Ask Zach. Today, we're going to talk about a must-do for any of you guys that are coming to Nashville, uh, and that's you have to go to the Musicians Hall of Fame. Uh, going to talk about why you should go, how the uh, how the museum came about, and a little bit about Joe Chambers, who uh, the, the founder of it. That unfortunately, recently he passed away, but I just want you to know the huge contributions he's made to musicians and also musicians being recognized for their uh, you know, hard work. All right. Also, we're going to continue to do Zach's, you know, kind of book nook. I think we're, we might call it now, you know, for now, we're going to call it Zach's book nook. And then if I can figure it out, I've got some, uh, you know, kind of funky footage of J.D. Simo and I geeking out over James Burton's guitars that were at the Musicians Hall of Fame this last month for a limited time. And so we geek out over all of the changes that James made to his uh, 69 Paisley and his 52 Telecaster that he painted red and all sorts of colors actually through the years. So yeah, so fun episode. And again, the focus is must do when you go to Nashville, the Musicians Hall of Fame. All right, so while you're thinking about it, if you haven't done it already, please hit subscribe if you've been enjoying the channel. If you've already subscribed, then I appreciate you supporting the channel. The best way is Patreon, and there's a link in the description. There's also a link to askzach.com where you can you know, find out more information, and there's articles that I've written. Also, there's a store where you can pick up t-shirts and other things. Also, there's tip jar information in the description. All right, let's dive in. So I guess first, what I'll say is wh why I'm doing the video. So just a couple of weeks ago, JD Simo contacted me and he said, we have to go to the Musicians Hall of Fame because they have James Burton's you know, two main Telecasters there. And it was something I knew about, but I just had kind of been lallygagging around. And I had been to the Hall of Fame briefly for an event. So it was kind of an after hours event. It was Gretsch was launching a new model and they had that, you know, kind of after hours. And we got to do kind of a truncated uh, visit to the museum, but I didn't really have a lot of uh, free time. We, it was kind of like, hey, the event's over, you can go through here, you know, and then you need to kind of move along, you know, because they all wanted to go home. So uh, JD said, you know, let's meet up. And so on a, on a Friday afternoon, we uh, met up at the Musicians Hall of Fame and you know, when I was able to go through it and they have, they have a video that it starts off with that really that's narrated by Dwayne Eddy and really 
kind of sets the uh, the groundwork for what you're going to see ahead in the museum. And then as we just walked through and uh, JD and I just kind of uh, gawked at, at all of the amazing instruments, not just guitars, you know, drums. It was like the drum set that uh, Santana's drummer used at Woodstock is there on display. Also the the drum set that uh, Tom Petty's you know drummer used you know all through the '80s and into the '90s uh, was was there. Uh, you know, keyboards used by all sorts of session musicians. Uh, golly, Joe Osborne, who is you know one one of the kind of the Wrecking Crew bassist besides Carol Kay, he played a uh, a jazz bass with a pick, and his jazz bass that he used on thousands of sessions. Is there on display and it is beat 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 to hell um, just so many amazing instruments and they're just it's just instrument after instrument and so I'm a big Reggie Young fan and so they had a whole section just dedicated to the Memphis boys and kind of the guys that were part of that Memphis scene that Reggie was part of that played on Elvis and Wilson Pickett and all sorts of, all sorts of other records and they had a whole display just to them and they had, you know, organs and drum sets and they had a couple of Reggie's guitars. They had the uh they had the Les Paul Deluxe, you know, with the mini humbuckers that he used for the fills and the solo on Drift Away. And they had the gut string guitar that he played on Elvis's In the Ghetto and they had the uh the sitar, the uh, you know the uh the electric, the choral sitar that he used on things like Cry Like a Baby and other tunes in the 60s. So that was just Reggie Young. And then there's stuff with John Jorgensen and B.B. King and on and on and on. I mean, it, there is a ridiculous amount of killer instruments and not just stuff that was just donated by some guy, but these are all instruments and amps, pedal boards, all sorts of things that, that saw major usage on major tours. They had one of David Hungate, who was the bass player for, for Toto. They had one of his early pedal boards. And it, it's just amazing. And just for the fact that you're able to see what early professional, you know, pedal boards, how they were built. And they used some odd connectors and eliminated some of the quarter inch cables. And it was really, really interesting. And so JD and I just kept being... Just, just kept being slack-jawed yokels as we went through this thing, and we've seen a lot of stuff. You know, JD and I have, have both have a lot of experience in the music industry. We've met a lot of people. We've seen a lot of cool instruments, and so that's how cool this museum is. And you really, if you go to Nashville, this is a absolute must-do. And you know, you can spend, you know. If you go quickly, it's about an hour. If you really want to you know, spend a lot of time, it's probably about two hours. But it's perfect for doing like a morning thing or an afternoon thing. And then, of course, you could do things like going to the Country Music Hall of Fame or other stuff. But what's really nice about the Musicians Hall of Fame is it is just about the musicians. So the Country Music Hall of Fame is going to be, you know, more about the artists. But they're also they're going to have stuff about players and songwriters and other people involved in that but the focus of the Musicians Hall of Fame are the musicians and their instruments and telling their stories. And there's such amazing examples of all sorts of guitars. Everything from, like I said, B.B. King to Steve Warner and you know, everyone in between. And they have 
stuff dedicated to muscle shoals. They have some of the muscle shoals, like the Swampers instruments. They have stuff from LA and New York and Detroit. I mean, there's guys, that, you know, instruments that were used on Motown records. So probably the, 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 <laughs> the section that might be the least represented might be country music because, uh, you know, again, they're just focusing on all the, the music that's been made here in the United States. So, again, this is a must-do. All right, now I'm going to tell you a little bit about Joe Chambers. So, the late Joe Chambers, who founded the Musicians Hall of Fame, was a musician from Georgia. He moved to Nashville with a band. He ended up becoming kind of a, a protege of Billy Sherrill, very famous producer and songwriter. Uh, Joe got into songwriting, had some success with that also doing some production, and he opened a music store, his first Chambers Music, he opened in 1985. Then as, as things went forward, he got more and more um, you know, invested into his music store and ended up opening a couple of locations. So by the mid to late 90s, there were a couple Chambers guitars across the Nashville area. So I remember there being one in the kind of the downtown Nashville area, and then there was one kind of in Franklin where I live. And then there was, uh, there was a location down in Murfreesboro. And interestingly enough, uh, Ryan Warner, Steve Warner's son, I met when he was working at, at one of the Chambers guitars. And I, you know, he was, he was a teenager at the time, but, uh, yeah, great shop. And I could, and he always had little displays of important musical memorabilia that was in glass cases. And I thought, Hmm, that's really cool. Well, fast forward a number of years, and he starts moving away from the music store focus, and he starts moving toward his dream of having a venue to showcase musicians. And so in 2006, he opens the Musicians Hall of Fame near downtown Nashville. Now, it exists there for a couple of years, and then in 2010, the city of Nashville used eminent domain to take his property. You know, basically they forced him to sell. And there was a lot of uproar. And, uh, you know, of course, it was kind of a David and, and Goliath kind of thing. And But the city ended up making it right. So don't get mad at Nashville. Uh, the, the city, what they did was they moved him to an even better location. So the old municipal auditorium here in Nashville had an exhibit hall. And that wasn't being used as much, but the venue itself was still being used you know, for concerts. So they gave him that. And that's where it's been since 2013. So it's almost 10 years in that location. And they have filled it out well. And it's really, really beautiful. Now a little bit about the Municipal Auditorium. So the significance of it being in Nashville's Municipal Auditorium is that's where the Stones played back in the 60s. That's where Elvis played. That's where just, you know, Led Zeppelin act after. If I mean, if it was a cool rock act in the 60s, they played at that Nashville's Municipal Auditorium. So that, that whole building is just, you know, it is just soaked in you know, in music, in memories and, and, you know, crazy guitar solos and all sorts of things being, being done there. So yeah, it really brought it full circle to where, you know, they, you had this precarious situation with, uh, with Joe Chambers in the museum. And then all of a sudden he was put in the perfect spot. Uh, 
Yeah. So again, I, I just have to say I'm uh, I'm very sad to hear of Joe Chambers passing. It was just a month or two ago, and my condolences to his family and friends. And I just wanted to do something to support the Musicians Hall of Fame, and so you know. Actually, JD bought me this T-shirt when we went there. He uh, he ended up treating me to everything. Nice guy. And uh, yeah, I hope that uh, you all will go down to the Musicians Hall of Fame whenever you're in Nashville, and and you will just find yourself gawking at all of the amazingly cool guitars, amps, you know, keyboards, you know, tape machines, everything you can think of. It's so worth the price of admission. You got to go. All right, now for Zach's book nook. This is The Memphis Boys, The Story of American Studios by Robin Jones. This book is for those of you that want to do a deep dive on the American Studios crew, which of course included Reggie Young as the guitarist. This is the story of Chips Moman, who was their leader and uh, who produced and owned American Studios. It's the story of all the players and the songs that they recorded on, like, you know, like Elvis's Suspicious Minds or, you know, In the Ghetto or, you know, The Box Tops Cry Like a Baby or so many other, you know, amazing tunes, you know, like The Dark End of the Street, the original recording of that. Uh, yeah, and their work, you know, the fact that they got to work with, uh, not all of them, but part of them got to, you know, go up to New York and work with uh, Aretha Franklin and others. And this is a, you know, a fabulous book and really, you know, the only thing out there that really tells the story. And it's, of course, focused on the time period from the late 50s into the, uh, you know, into the mid-70s when that scene kind of comes. And, it, and, they, and they, it goes on some past that. But uh, that's the, the meat of the book is the era when they were recording in Memphis, you know, throughout the 60s and early 70s. Really great book. And especially for those that want to do a, a deep dive on that uh, musical scene, uh, very much enjoyed it. All right, guys. So now, if it works out, I'm going to show you some footage of uh, JD and I geeking out at the uh, Musicians Hall of Fame. So now I'm just to warn you beforehand, the orientation on this is going to be, uh, you know, not, you know, the, the same, you know, horizontal. So uh, anyway, just take that into account and then uh, just realize that this is two, uh, two musicians, two geeks, you know, two, two guitar geeks just really geeking out, having a great time. All right. I hope you enjoy it and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Hey guys, I'm here at the Musicians Hall of Fame and my friend J.D. Simo is helping out by filming. And pardon the, uh, the Elvis clambake you know, music that's playing and such, but we're just, we're just here and just happy to take this in. This is really rare to get to see these guitars. So these, to me, are the two most important Telecasters you know, of all time, in my opinion. And so this is James's original 52 Telecaster. So if you look at it all, you can see that the frets are gone. They are totally just, they've, they've been worn out. So this is the guitar that James played from 1952 when his parents bought it for him when he was 13 years old. This is the Suzy Q guitar. This is the, 
you know, Fools Rush In, this is uh, Hello Mary Lou, this is Buck Owens' Open Up Your Heart, Let the Sun Shine In, this is Merle Haggard, uh, you know, Bottle Let Me Down, uh, this is Working Man Blues, this is Early Elvis, this is Wrecking Crew, this is an amazing guitar. It's been refinished multiple times, usually in a red finish that matched whatever guitar, whatever, actually whatever car that James had at the time. He really enjoyed having his guitar match his Cadillac. And so this is Coronado Red, and it matched the last Cadillac that he had in the late 60s. So you can see it, it has a mix of parts on here. You see some flathead screws, you see some Phillips, uh, the saddles have obviously been replaced. That is the original serial number, 4590. That is the original flat pole bridge pickup, original neck pickup. The pit guard has been replaced with an early 60s, you know, eight hole but still single ply. The, uh, the knobs are, you know, they look to be mid 50s rather than original. Yeah. Because they're more rounded. Right. And then you have a, a later a switch. later switch tip. Yeah. yeah. Now we're we're gonna. Yeah. I'm glad that JD's chiming in too. And uh, talk about what you think about the finish there, JD. Well, it's just really interesting to see. I mean, because I've seen a handful of guitars that were refinned back in you know the the 60s or 70s, and it's just very stereotypical of guitars that were refinned back then. Because as you see, like the primer, which a, a white or you know flat base primer is would be very common you can see actually on the heel um a really good amount of the primer color um now, now this refin was apparently done by fender done by fender yeah. so he he they saw him play it apparently and he took it there and when he took it to fender he took all of his parts off because he was afraid that they would would have replaced would have replaced them and yeah, the yeah and everything else so they refinished it and then and then they gave him this next guitar which yeah we'll move over to that yeah. this is just it really is crazy tell them about the frets though the reason why the frets are completely worn out because james was very old school and kind of going along with leo fender and that he kind of felt like when the frets were worn out it meant it was time to kind of move on to another guitar which is just crazy yeah because of course we would have loved if he would have continued to play it but he was a Fender endorser, and you have to think about this fact that, you know, this guitar was not indicative in right. in some ways of what Fender was. was but, making. I mean, literally, folks, they're, they're, they're almost flat with the fingerboard. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to get it. I've zoomed way in on it, and I'm doing a decent job of showing, but it's like, that's craziness. That's crazy town. Yeah, they're, they're gone. But and then... It, yes. In 69, Fender, uh, Fender gave James this guitar. And I'm sorry, we've got more clam bake going on. <laughs> but you can see, you know, this is very normal for this era guitar to have all these, these cracks in it because this is contact paper that was put on the top and back, and then they would burst the sides. And so, it, you know, the adhesive underneath it would, would come loose. Lots of modifications to this guitar. Yeah, we are actually noticing, or Zach noticed first, I'm going to try and get... I actually have it on camera here. If you see, look at the bridge pickup. It's, there. there's a split in the middle and more indicative of the Red Rhodes modification. Red Rhodes was known to use copper, which is weird. Yeah. That's not a normal, yeah. 
you know. And he was the hot rodder. I mean, yeah. he was the hot rodder. In so LA. you see the bright copper windings on the bridge pickup, which indicate that it was indeed rewound and worked on by Red Roads. But also look at the gap. Talk about that. Yeah, the gap, It's it's got to be two different coils. Yeah. And so I don't know if that's a humbucking effect, but what James told me when I spoke with him, if you see the switch that's in between the volume and tone controls with the white tip, he told me, he said, it would give it a boost and make it sound more like a humbucker. So that makes complete sense. Wow, but, okay. Yeah. And so as you can tell, this looks like a completely new pickup because it's flat pole, which yep. originally this would have had a staggered pole pickup. Exactly. So this is- So what happened to the original pickup? Who Lord knows, knows. Yeah. yeah. So now, I guess going on with the modifications you have, this has the wrong, this, has, this is a Schecter or Goto bridge so it's six saddle this was put on <laughs> yes this was put on in the in the early 1980s it's brass and chrome plated the original ash or the original three saddle bridge was only on the guitar for a couple of years and then he went to a six saddle bridge but that still had the sides to it mm -hmm. and then this this bridge was put on in the early 80s most likely by john carruthers yeah yeah then you have uh, the switch tip is changed which it's funny these two guitars yes. each they it's, it's almost like that could be the switch tip that goes with the 52 for Correct. all we know for all we know uh, but those are you know flat top you know yep. knobs uh, of course we already mentioned the switch uh, nothing unusual about the uh, the pit guard or the, or the or the neck pickup. The neck is a replacement. This is not the original neck. This is a satin finish James Burton model neck. When they started making the signature models in the early 90s, or actually I think it was 89, they made one of these for James just to put on this guitar because again the frets were worn out, and he wasn't going to pay for a refret. <laughs> no, no offense, James. But he, uh, you know, because he was a Fender endorser, and so he could just tell him, give me another neck. And so that's what they did. And so they did put a 70s, you know, or late 60s style logo on there. But you can see it's missing any of the serial numbers or anything that would be on there. And just the way it looks. You can tell yeah. when you're looking at it, like, there's just no age on it. There's no... The frets are huge. Yeah, these are medium jumbo frets, which are what's on the, the James Burton signature model. Two, two string trees. And then those are Clusen machine heads. Those are not F tuners, which would have, which would have been, been on the original. original. But of course, they, they won't even reissue F tuners at this point. So very, very cool guitars. And uh, to get to come here with my buddy JD, uh, real, real treat. Because to me, these are, these are the guitars, especially this one. Yeah. This is, this is the, to me, this is the greatest Telecaster of all time. I mean, it's the reason why pretty much anybody ever wanted one. How you doing, folks? It's pretty crazy to see this in person. Because um, really, anybody that ever wanted to play a Telecaster, you know, whether it was, you know, somebody like Robbie Robertson who was going to have to play Suzy Q or something, or obviously all the British Invasion guys, and later on in the 70s, you know, it's just every Merle Haggard record, it's just crazy. So cool. So I don't know when he's gonna put this together, but these are literally only gonna be here a few more days at the Musicians Hall of Fame. Thanks for listening to the Ask Zach podcast.
If you want to dive deeper, check out my website, askzach.com, to find more articles and further info on each episode. And remember, it is the support from you, the listener, that keeps the show going. Thank you, friends.